0: Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altai, meet with ear opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together and a highly generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversations. There's so much to learn from Kemi Ilesami, as the executive director of the Laundromat project. We'll be hearing how she positions herself and the institution with striking clarity towards making New York City a better place by bringing people together and touching the lives of places through arts and culture. We discussed the importance of how histories are written, the necessity of acknowledging other knowledges and other ways of knowing, and the essential economic dimension of gaining access to the cultural field, and why focusing on people of color matter today. It's great to have you at Ahali Conversations. I just want to start right away with The laundromat project and your especially work in the recent years and maybe this extremely valuable and necessary and relevant focus on people of color and in a way how it relates to your own history as well and maybe the personal always becomes the general and the the personal is always very much embedded in the political so Maybe would you like to start with how it all started for you? I'm, I'm basically referring to your experience of coming from Nigeria and uh, having to finish high school twice <laughs> and how it kind of evolves
1: from there. Yes, yes, yes. My uh, mother is African-American from Maryland here in the United States and um, married my father, a Nigerian man who was here for college, undergrad and grad. So I was born in the United States, but moved to Nigeria when I was six, lived there until I was 15. My parents split and we, my mom, my sister, myself headed back to Maryland where, yes, I got to finish high school for a second time. And some of the gifts, there are many gifts that I think Nigeria gave me and continues to give me. I still have family there, my father, etc. and go home and visit. Was a love for the arts because it was very much a part of my family's life and my life and my uncle is a poet and my mom and my father both have artistic practices on the side. It was never their main thing. So that was always going to museums in Lagos and other cultural events was always there. And obviously because it was in Nigeria, very much focused on Nigerian culture and history. So I did end up back in the States of 15, initially tried business school because that was what a good half immigrant person should do so that you'll be able to take care of yourself. But it turns out that wasn't my life's calling. So I actually dropped out and eventually went back for an African-American studies degree. And I had a professor who suggested that I apply to the Walk Art Center, which is how I met you, uh, <laughs> curator there. And I applied for what was supposed to be a year-long internship that turned into a six-year experience. I got hired got to work on beautiful, amazing exhibitions. And one of the things that happened at the Walker that I think is really instrumental to the work I do now is I was there from 98 to 2004, so six years, you know, quite a while ago at this point. And the Walker Art Center had a series of grants. There are two, actually, one that you were involved in. One was focused on residencies. Really, the idea was to connect artists from elsewhere. I think that would look different now. But at the time, it was like, let's get artists from other parts of the United States, other parts of the world, bring them into Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities, connect them to resources, people, ideas here in the city, create a project, et cetera. So I loved that connection outside the walls, the four walls of the gallery was really formative for me. And the other was the grant that led to us meeting when Latitudes Becomes Form, yes, mm-hmm. uh, was the exhibition that, that in which we met and I was a co-curator of. And we had this global council with Vasif Kortun from from Turkey and someone from South Africa and India and Brazil. <laughs> there was a global arts council that did a series of meetings in Minneapolis looking at issues of the global and, and the arts and our field, and we put together this um, incredible exhibition. So I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but I think that really helped also the plan. Mm, this
2: yeah. But
0: now, especially with the Laundromat project and the uh, various kind of initiatives and projects you are involved in, it's ventured outside of the museum or the art institution yeah. in yeah. that yeah. sense, and ventured yeah. into spaces that are not necessarily designated for art to nurture, and also merge with communities in a sense. And maybe we could talk a little bit about how does organizing and making art possible in these non-designated places work for you? And what are your experiences in relation to working with communities, but also working with existing environments that are not necessarily meant to host art or meant for you to encounter art, but suddenly allows you a different kind of access, both on behalf of perhaps the the artist practitioners who uh, develop projects there, but also more importantly with the community to come across the people who work in that relation.
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think about the word reimagine a lot, right? So... Just to give a very quick history of the name of the organization, The Laundromat Project, it was founded by a woman named Lisa Wilson who grew up in Black Philadelphia and ended up in bed where she's lived for over 20 years now and founded the organization in bed which is a part of Brooklyn, a neighborhood in Brooklyn. And the idea was to actually own and operate a laundromat that would be providing something that people need. A lot of people in New York City do not have their own laundry in their own apartment. So many of us go to, to laundromats and it would be providing a need and then connecting folks to art once they came through the door. So the space would you know, reflect art. There might, if it was a building with several stories, there might be other kinds of arts activities. So you come to your laundry and find out that you could have an art class or residency, et cetera. And the idea was also that profits from the laundromat would then feed into the uh, revenues for the organization.
2: Mm. No
1: one on the early board or Risa herself were born with a trust fund or anything that would allow us to buy a building in New York City even 15 years ago. Talkless of now. So we very quickly pivoted to actually doing work citywide and not just being in one neighborhood and really just situating ourselves in communities of color, artists of color around the city.
0: So it really started from a single laundromat, but then kind of decided to expand.
1: It started from a single idea of a laundromat. Mm. But literally, the very first program was actually three artists in three different parts of the city. So we started out in three laundromats. And over the years, we worked in several laundromats with artists in residence in those different laundromats. And then one of the things we also discovered, again, you learn by doing, was that, and I'll get back to the community question, but just trying to set up how we even got to laundromats. We learned very quickly that, or over time, I should say, because it took seven, eight, nine, ten years, that not every project was meant for a laundromat. Not every project was going to thrive in a laundromat setting. Maybe it was going to be a much better connection in a community garden or on the sidewalk. We do a lot of work on the sidewalks of New York City or a library or some other community gathering space. And really what mattered was where's a place that people gather in the community that they care about and have designated as a community space. And a laundromat is a de facto community gathering space. But there are other spaces that sometimes are even intentionally community spaces like a community garden. So we, a few years ago, decided that we were no longer going to require artists to work in a laundromat, but instead asked them to tell us what space made sense for their project. And since then, it's been, like I said, sidewalks and community gardens and libraries and other community spaces And over the time, some of the stuff that we've learned and learned again and reiterated to ourselves is just the power of presence. So, yes, the work we're doing is often not what people expect to encounter, be it a sidewalk a community garden or a laundromat. So what's the invitation and how do people know? And particularly in big cities, certainly New York City, you walk by, you do not engage The default is to (laughs) not engage (laughs) until you know what that person (laughs) needs or wants from you. So the invitation is literally just being present and also having something for folks to do. So what we have done at laundromats consistently for a number of years, since early to the beginning, is particularly in the summer, and the warmer months, we often hold art activities outside a neighborhood laundromat. And... Parents really appreciate it, particularly if you do it at a time that matters, which is when school gets out around two or three, they're walking by. All of this, of course, is pre-COVID and there's something to do and their kids, often kids will drag them in. Like I see something colorful, there might be something to do here. Caregiver, adults, why don't we check this out? So that idea of being present, being a low threshold for entry so Mm -hmm. the kids are willing to do whatever their art activity is. The parents need a little, or the caregivers, whoever they might be, often need a little more time. But that sense of being present and just not with an agenda always, but sometimes we have artists who will just sit out and kind of chat with folks. We do like, we'll meet on stoops and just chat with folks. We'll go to community meeting groups and just chat with folks.
0: And the laundromat also is like a metaphor, I think, because it refers to an access to infrastructure which is not available in the domestic household in a yes. way, like literally. Yeah. But yeah. it's also a community space. So it has this double ontology almost. That's it's a, social
1: infrastructure, right? Like there's been a little bit of writing around this idea of social infrastructure, which is... Mm-hmm. The connective spaces like community gardens, like libraries, like laundromats, where people meet, they gather, they have a chance to connect with strangers and with friends, because that's also key, right? That sense, again, we're in a city, right? So connecting with strangers is part of what gives us energy in a city. And one of the things we like to say that we do is that we turn strangers into neighbors. And that idea of building connective tissue and social cohesion is very much one of our goals as an organization.
0: Fantastic. And how does it really work? Like, would you care to maybe give an example or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I have a couple of, in mind, but I'm going to start with one that's actually uh, taking place right now in the midst of COVID. So two artists, Zenia Diente and Jacqueline Reyes applied for a residency. Each artist gets up to 20,000 U.S. dollars towards their project for honoraria and production. We have an open application process. People apply and go through a selection process. So we chose three artist projects. They can be collaborative. So we have three projects this year, but four artists because Jacqueline and Xenia are working. Xenia went through our fellowship in 2012 and now has come back as an artist in residence. Our fellowship is, at the time it wasn't free, but now it's a professional training program for artists who want to do community-based work. So just to say, we like to work with folks over and over again. And really Mm -hmm. this idea of building a community that continues to be engaged and feed itself. Our Mm -hmm. mission very quickly is that we, and then I'll come back to the project, we advance artists and neighbors as change agents in their own communities. We know that artists can be neighbors and neighbors can be artists. So that idea of community includes artists. I want to just say that for us, the idea of community. Our six-word version, or nine-word version, I should say, of what we do is that we make art, we build community, and we create change. So artists come to us with an idea that connects to issues of social change, social justice, social relations, right? It's not art for art's sake. It really is about that kind of connectivity. And we have a residency program, which is the project I'll tell you about now, and an example of, we have a fellowship training program and we try and engage with community on the ground. We had a space in the South Bronx for five years that we closed uh, at the end of 2019. And we're in the midst of setting up a new space in Bedford Cyrus and bed in Brooklyn and uh, having signed our first 10-year lease. We're 15 years old this summer and it's taken 15 years to get to the point where we could sign a 15-year lease. So Issues of institution building are very much on the brain for me at all times. Now, back to this project, which has gone through, it has different names. I'm just going to go ahead and call it Little Manila Queens. Mm -hmm. So Jacqueline and Xenia are both uh, Filipino. We work with communities of color exclusively and artists of color predominantly. And they're both Filipino-American. Xenia is a native New Yorker, grew up in Woodside, Queens, And it turns out that Woodside Queens actually has a really large population of Filipinos. And certainly in New York City, the largest population of Filipino Americans. So Xenia grew up in that neighborhood. Jacqueline grew up elsewhere, not from New York City. So this neighborhood has a lot of meaning for them. There's a Filipino grocery store, lots of Filipino small businesses. So they actually wanted to connect to small businesses and Filipino History Month American History Month is in October. So they also wanted to build towards a festival of Filipino American art and culture that they would get to be part of a festival and in fact create a festival to happen in October. So that was the original idea. They were going to partner with small businesses, make art for the small businesses, connect them to artists, Filipino artists, and then working towards the end of the year festival. And this idea of making Filipino American history and culture, particularly in New York City, more visible. So that would be kind of a social Mm -hmm. change is just this idea of lifting up a community that many of us are not necessarily super familiar with. I didn't realize that Woodside Queens was a Filipino-centric neighborhood until I was told, for instance. Well, then COVID hit about a month into their residency and they were amazing. In fact, a few days before it actually really hit and the city shut down, Xenia had just spent two or three weeks on holiday in the Philippines. So she had just returned with all the inspiration of having spent some time at home. I think it had been a while since she had been to the Philippines. And suddenly our city is under lockdown and uh, pandemic and all of that they very quickly tuned into something that I also didn't know. A lot of Filipinos in the United States came in through their mothers or a woman in their family who was a nurse in the mm-hmm. 70s and other periods, 80s, and maybe even 60s as well. So there's a, a number, a series of programs that because we didn't have enough nurses here that we're looking for nurses elsewhere and the Philippines became a supplier of uh, nurses to the United States. And then families came and all of that, and they built communities. So each of them actually had that as part of their own family history. And they knew that some of the hospitals in the neighborhood had large incidents of uh, staff members, nurses, and other healthcare professionals that would be Filipino. So they immediately tuned into that because of their own family histories, their own understanding of Woodside, Queens, Elmhurst, and that part of Queens, which was the early epicenter in in New York of the coronavirus, was Queens. Mm -hmm. Literally, Elmhurst Hospital, which made the news very early on, not in a good way, um, was just a few blocks away from where Xenia grew up and lives. So they, again, tuned into this and decided to essentially set up a mutual aid society with some artistic elements. So they raised money through a GoFundMe so that they could buy a series of meals on Sundays. They did it for about three months, starting on Easter Sunday and through June, and provided Filipino meals to different hospitals and nursing homes and other kind of care community centers around Queens for the course of that time. And they used the funds they raised to pay for money to restaurants and small businesses in mm-hmm. um, Little Manila. So they were able to support the restaurants, provide food for healthcare workers who were inundated. That, April was the height of the yeah. pandemic for us in New York City and going into May. So it was a really stressful time for everyone and particularly healthcare workers. So they, through word of mouth, they were also able to connect to the Filipino society and a number of other groups, partnered with small businesses. And in each of the food, everyone got a little kind of care package of lunch. They provided an art activity that was based on Filipino traditions and culture, which they had designed Xenia and Jacqueline. So they did that for three months as a response to what was needed in this moment. Mm -hmm. And they continue to set up partnerships with the small businesses. They have four small businesses that each has a Filipino artist working with them to create a project leading up to the festival. So that part is still happening. And this was something they hadn't planned, but it's come out of this. They were able to put up a mural designating this as Little Manila, which is the first time a mural has been put up that actually says a phrase of welcome in Tagalog, and they've launched a campaign to rename the street. We have co-naming streets in New York City, where streets mm-hmm. still have its regular name, but a block will have a special name of a person or an activity or a theme that matters, some historic quality. They're in a campaign now to get the street renamed Little Manila. All of that happened within the context of an art project that still has three or four more months to go.
0: Wow. So in a way, the kind of artistic intervention is not only a manner of moderating these relationships between the small businesses and the healthcare providers, but Mm -hmm. also, in a way, building from that to change the environment, so to say. because Change the landscape. And also, the street names, I think, like monuments, is something we tend to neglect, but usually they refer to... Kind of violent histories, or there can be something very political embedded in also street names and this kind of reversal and empowering the presence. And even if it's like a second name, as you suggested, is such a strong gesture, I think. And in a way, the dimension of mutual aid and support not only stays there, but builds into something that, in a way, is remembered or commemorized, memorialized in a sense.
1: And they were able to raise up what role Filipino Americans have played and continue to play in our healthcare system that many of us didn't know. And in fact, Xenia has been making beautiful portraits of some of the healthcare workers. That's another art element that she's been doing, actually.
0: It's very interesting. I mean, I can't help but think of the current reconsideration of monuments. And because you touched on the power of presence, usually Mm -hmm. a kind of public sculpture or a memorial or a monument is about the presence of power in the negative sense. And nowadays we are going through, especially I think where you are, going through a kind of reconsideration of that history and what placing such objects in the middle of public spaces mean. And there is a strong reaction to point to the fact that there is always a history and there is always a kind of political dimension embedded to these Objects that make our urban landscape. I don't know mm-hmm. if you'd like to touch on that or comment.
1: Absolutely. Uh, when we were chatting earlier uh, last week, I guess, I had mentioned a really great article, and I'm happy to share all of this afterwards, by Siddharthar Mister, who's an, a journalist here in New York, but does really beautiful work all around the country and beyond. And he has a piece about monuments and the civic imagination that I've really been meditating on. And he because so much has been happening around monuments and physical space and public space, particularly since the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, so we have Black Lives Matter street murals. The LP, the laundromat project's new office, is just a, a block and a half from the first one that went up in New York City in Bedford-Stuyvesant in bed mm-hmm. And looking at a whole lot of different conversations about space and the power of space and the fact that it's never settled, it's always contested, right? Like these, what we name things, how we name them, et cetera. So sometimes you forget what things mean for years or even decades, but there's usually someone who's tuned in and someone who cares. And this has become a portal, a moment, an opportunity to reconsider and the speed at which these reconsiderations are happening around the world is stunning so looking at what happened in bristol england not in the united states right a uh, black community there tearing down a statue and very symbolically throwing it into a river it was also something siddhartha talks about that as well but just all of these engagements with the idea of the civic imagination and wrestling with that one of the things that he laid out that I'd already seen, um, I actually have good friends who live in Richmond, Virginia. So I've been watching it through their Facebook feeds, et cetera. But part of what he was able to pull together in this particular article was a little bit of the history of, of what was going on there, which I didn't have all the dots, you know. So I've been to Monument Avenue, which is a mile long lineup of Confederate statues and what was the former head of the Confederacy. So the Southern states trying to secede in our civil war of the 1860s. And very controversial and contested space within Richmond for hopefully obvious reasons around race and power. And one of the first things that people did and started to agitate around after George Floyd's murder, because we've had conversations about monuments going on, certainly in Richmond, but all over the country for a long time, right? So there've been these flare-ups. And this was a particular moment of, of flare up. And not only did they have a young black mayor, their first, who immediately removed four of the statues. I don't know how many there are, but it's in the neighborhood of 20 or 30, like it's a lot of them, but he had control of four, not the rest. So he removed those. The statue there, you know, the main statue, the main event of Monument Avenue is Robert E. Lee, the general of the Confederacy. And it's where his statue is, it's kind of at the head of Monument Avenue. It is known as Robert Lee Circle, E. Lee Circle. Well, the first thing they did was to graffiti everything, all the fans, right? Like they're each on mm-hmm. a big, planet, completely overrun with messages, Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Does not look like anything like what it looked like before, has a real, you know, energy that graffiti and street art kind of bring into things. They've not been able to remove the statue. The governor has given the permission because that one falls under the governor's care. Mm -hmm. However, there's a lawsuit winding its way through the courts. So for now, General E. Lee stands. But what also fascinates me is the people have renamed the square, what used to be Robert E. Lee Circle, after a young Black man that was killed by the cops two years ago. Mm -hmm. Now people refer to that space with the name of the young man. They have reclaimed, renamed, and re-energized the politics of that space with an entirely new set of information. And then two artists, young white artists um, who actually live in Richmond, decided that they also wanted to participate and wanted to figure out how to be in this moment in a way that made sense for them. And would not, you know, take away but add to this moment of charge, political mm-hmm. charge. So they've been projecting images, Harriet Tubman, George Floyd, John Lewis, our civil rights leader who just died a week and a half ago. Yeah. And each night they drag out a whole apparatus of like, you know, projector and all the things. One of them is a computer geek, so he has it perfectly framed to fit the Robert E. Lee, Plinth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it, a space where people meet and gather and agitate and all of that happened since may 25th it's just incredibly powerful that sense of the civic imagination and the space to move ideas through physical time space and public
0: yeah and i think it's really important the way you i mean you explained it beautifully and I think it's like there is an element also not only undermining the hierarchy of knowledge, but also overlaying something, yes. overlaying other epistemology, other knowledge on top of that yes. thing that is existing so that it becomes something else. And that's, I think, both in the case of tagging and graffiti and also in the case of projecting, it's similar manner of overlaying this new new knowledge or other knowledge, not new, but it's already existing, but this other knowledge so that it opens up awareness about the fact. Absolutely. You
1: know. I love that. Yes, that idea of the overlay, I think is really powerful that Robert E. Lee is still up. Mm-hmm. I think that actually lends great particular charge to that overlay. I would still like it to come down eventually, personally, yeah. but <laughs> in this time, I think it adds information that's really useful that overlay that you're talking about. Definitely. And this idea of ordinary information, that's something we think about at the Laundromat Project a lot. We've supported about 80, 70-something projects over 15 years, artist projects. Some of them group projects, some of them collaborative projects. Our professional development fellows put group projects together as Mm -hmm. part of their training. So we have a few of those. We have collaborative teams and we have single artists. So all of those different configurations 70-something projects. Many, many, many of them have been about narrative. Mm -hmm. Storytelling, oral history, some kind of gathering of other knowledges, and some kind of making those knowledges visible. So even again, this whole notion of um, nurses from the Philippines, that is a story narrative that has been lifted. It was always there, to your point, But now it's been made visible that this is a neighborhood with Filipino businesses. I've been to that neighborhood before. It's not like I've never been to Woodside, but I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't put those dots together. Now it's been made visible to me and to other folks, right? We had a project by Lisania Cruz, who's a Dominican, originally from the Dominican Republic, and moved here as an adult. She moved here for college or after college, in fact. And she is a Black, Afro-Latina immigrant, and she did a project called We the News, And she gathered the stories of Black immigrants. And she also considered immigrants from the Southern United States, like Black Americans from other parts, but mainly folks from the Caribbean or Africa, many of whom didn't come directly. Maybe they spent time in Italy. Maybe they spent time in China. Maybe they spent time in Canada before they ended up in New York City. Again, those global routes, migration, are are stories all their own. And she talked to people who had been here for six months, and she talked to people who had been here for 30, 40 years. And she did that in story circles, so people told these stories as groups, so building connect tissue between them. She partnered with the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which is an advocacy and service organization for Black immigrants that does work nationally. So they usually provide services for folks and do amazing work, but she gave them an opportunity to learn the full story of the people they worked with, not just Mm -hmm. what they did in that moment, which is important and that is what they do and that's their mission. But they didn't necessarily ever have the time to ask, how did you get here? What do you do? What does this feel like? What was the transition to being American? What is it or whatever that looks like? You know, just the story of who they are in a fuller way. So she was able to get into those stories as well as painful stories, like, you know, a whole range of emotions and she created zines. So she made zines from their stories, which she worked with them to make sure was what they wanted it to say. And she has a mobile library. So she can just set up on any sidewalk or in front of anything around the country it's traveled and, and also been in various parts of New York city. She can set that up and she has little benches and you can just visit this mobile library of Black immigrant stories and learn directly in their own words what it means to be a Black immigrant in New York City in the United States right now. So another equal stories.
0: Yeah, and I imagine possibly the depth that this provides is very different to any demographic or any kind of metadata, so to say, that that is usually registered in the kind of formal hierarchy of knowledge. Yes. Uh, about the people, about us, but in general. And that kind of minor histories or that kind of individual stories mm-hmm. actually mean a lot in understanding, in getting a grasp of the actual cultural landscape, the actual society we live in and we participate in. So I think that's super valuable in that sense as well. And I mean, I was thinking about something you said in an interview, Earlier on, which was kind of touching on, again, similar to this hierarchy of knowledge, but the kind of, especially the arts history in relation to leisure and class. Mm. And in a, in a sense, the kind of relationship to, I will say, whiteness for, mm. and the conditions of work in the cultural field and the, the presuppositions of, in a way, privilege and how you try to also challenge that by pointing out to kind of paid labor and other dimensions in relation to cultural work. Would you like to comment a little bit on that?
1: Yes, absolutely. We'll see and certainly uh, guide me with questions if I miss something specific. One of the things that I entered this field by working at the Walker Arts Center, I actually uh, participated in a one-year internship fellowship that was specifically set up for folks of color to be able to enter into this field. And I know Mm -hmm. so many people, and that's their story in this country, you enter through uh, opportunity that was actually set up for folks of color because we're so underrepresented in the field. It was paid and I did not have to have an art degree. Those were two key things because I don't have any art degrees. I have two degrees in neither of that. And I couldn't work for free, right? That wasn't Mm -hmm. one of the high class options. So, it was so, and it's 22 years later, I'm still doing this work and really loving this work, and that was the portal that allowed me to do that. So, I, from get-go, I've had to think about issues of economics in relationship to myself and my work, and by extension, now I get to run an organization as the first people of color POC organization that I've ever been a part of as a staff member. I was actually on the board of the laundromat project for five years, by the way. And then I took off a few years and came back as a staff member. So this is also the first time I've gotten to work at and with an institution that's building from a space of being uh, people of color centered. And I'm the person in charge, right? I work with a board. I have incredible staff, all of that. But I have incredible decision-making power. I have incredible power to shape culture. And I don't take any of it lightly, so number one, very early on, we started figuring out, oh, we've got to pay interns this time. I was employee number two, so I really was very early on into the time that we became more institutional. you know before that it was mm-hmm. the founder, board members, et cetera, kind of making it work, so we don't have to be the ones that pay them, but some they need to be paid. and that's central sometimes their colleges pay sometimes they come through a program we're incredibly appreciative when that happens and if that can't happen we figure out how to pay them so that's just like baseline in this field pay your interns full stop in the United States I don't know the practices elsewhere so a lot of agitation around that we were a small organization and we were able to do this from the get-go and then when you think about one Things I think about a lot is we've had over my eight years and then years before that, so many incredible folks who have been fellows and interns and staff members and predominantly folks of color. Again, if you pay, that makes it available as an opportunity to folks of color who can't work for free office. So we've had so many incredible young folks of color come through and spend anything from three months to a year with the LP. And it's been, from their own reporting back to us and seeing what they're doing in the world, really instrumental into the ways that they think about this work, what they understand to be a career path for themselves. So our role in helping to shape and allow an opportunity for younger folks of color to explore this field as a possible career is something I also take really seriously and want to help shape. So we really invest in professional development and like trainings and conversations and connecting folks to other opportunities, to each other, to other people in the field. Your network is so important in doing this work. We know that. And that's one of the things that people of color may not have. If That's no one in my family has ever worked in the arts. No one in my family has had a (laughs) white-collar job, right? Or whatever that might look like. So issues of access are really key, and being able to set up connectivity and connections between folks really key. It's that building community piece, right? And being able to pay my staff well and invest in them and pay our artists, also folks of color, that deserve money to do the work that we value, which is making art and making creativity. So all of those things are connected. Our board are people of color, et cetera. So we have lots of white folks who are involved in our work and supportive of our work and really important to the doing of the work. But the work itself is about people of color and cultural workers, including our staff. And being able to think about community in all of those ways, I think is part of the larger work of helping to build a field in which they can do this work, make a career in doing this work. And I think that's really key. Mm-hmm. You can do something yeah. to your 25, 30, and then it's like, whoa, whoa, I got to I gotta really pay my bills. I can't live on this salary any longer. And then you lose people to other things. So being yeah. able to create ways where they can actually make a life doing something they love and with communities they love is really important.
0: Definitely. And uh, providing the resources and the kind of livelihood, uh, but also the duration. And one thing you touched on in the beginning was also... I've been thinking about since the moment you said it, you said community, but the audience or the people who encounter the works that are put out there also always includes future cultural producers. So in a way, you mentioned the growth or the kind of passage from being a viewer or participant or community member to becoming also a producer, a cultural worker, and someone who puts back or generates work and that's also very valuable. In addition, I mean, I totally agree with what you all no,
1: said. I 100% agree. And, and being able to th- people in their multiplicity of roles and identities, including I'm a culture producer, I'm a parent, I'm a neighbor, I'm a, I live down the street. You know, all of those things, allowing people to come with all of that and respecting all of that. One of the things we also hear from our artists who do work, again, in whatever communities they're in, and it might be a physical community or it might be a community of affinity. So Zini and Jacqueline are working in Little Manila, which is a specific place in New York City, and Lizania with Black immigrants was working with Black immigrants all across the city because the connective tissue was their identity and affinity, not space, just to say that, was something we had to learn. We initially started with this idea of place and it really expanded to also include issues of affinity. So just wanted to kind of mention the ways that community uh, kind of shift. So a lot of the artists we've worked with have had to learn how to be visible in their communities because they, you know, they might do a project and hang out and be like, I'm an artist, and here's a project, I want you involved when they used to just be able to walk down the street without anybody knowing that. And that actually Is something folks have talked about, that transition to being visible as a cultural worker in their own communities and having to navigate that after the project is done. It changes how other people understand them in the community.
0: Definitely. And in a sense, like that also relates to the fact that doing projects such as the ones you organize in these contexts also enabled the community to look back on itself as well whether it's a community related to place or whether it's a community related to affinity, it allows you to reflect on like, your own position and existence. And so I think that's super valuable as well. I mean, I can talk forever, to be honest, uh, and I have many questions, but also I want to not take the whole time. So maybe this might be a good moment to open up for comments or questions if there are any
3: Hi, Kimi. Thank you so much. This has been really interesting to listen to. I have a question for you. So you touched about the notion of civic imagination, and journalism has a big influence on the public view. So I'm not sure if you heard it or not, and maybe it doesn't matter if you had. But um, very recently, there was some reporting about a curator, Rebecca Blum, being murdered by a quote-unquote, famous male artists. And the way it was reported was more about the famous artist rather than the female victim. I won't name him, not to contribute to his metadata, but I will say her name once again, Rebecca Blum. And my concern is about the way it was reported by major art news channels. It is a narrative of a successful male artist committing suicide, and the fact that he killed his female partner is almost like an asterisk within the story. This is a very big topic, violence against women, especially in Turkey today. So I'm wondering what you think about the very machines that spread the information of today and also the same machines that write the history of art. Maybe within the shadow of this poor reporting, I would like to hear what you think about art journalism. Thank you.
1: Wow, yes, okay. That, I do not know uh, that specific story. I will definitely research after this. Um, and I'm really sorry for her and her family. The issue of writing and putting ourselves on record and the power of being on record, is something I think about colonial history. Mm-hmm. I'm a Black woman in America and all my histories that come with that. And I work in the production of culture and all of the ways that that, who goes on record and how, and how it's framed and what we care about is something I think about a lot. So one of the values of the LP, something we defined for ourselves about a year and a half ago when we revisited our values was that we want to write our own histories. Literally, that's, What we say, if you look at our website, one of our values is write our own histories. And so we're in the midst of working on a book that's going to come out in a couple of years, looking at issues of socially engaged art, very much from a POC, people of color perspective. And that's the aim. That's something that we feel is missing in the many books and things that have been written about this work. And in fact, situating ourselves within a history, we're writing our own timeline of who influenced our work with a focus on people of color in the United States and elsewhere, because there are a lot of global people from elsewhere and global events, et cetera, that we feel inform the work, whether it's something we think about every day or just something that's kind of in our DNA, right? And being able to rewrite that and center Black and Indigenous and Latinx and Arab and all these different, you know, Asian voices and cultures Becomes is really, really important to our sense of what we are, again, what's, what are we contributing to the bigger picture of what this work is and who goes on record? Books and the written word function in a very particular way that is racialized and related to notions of power and gender to the point of your particular story. All of that is in play. We're very aware of that and really wanting to make an intentional intervention in that space. The other thing that I definitely have been paying attention to here because a number of folks are doing this is particularly examples coming to my mind right now, particularly African-American folks, but not exclusively what that is. Who is writing from a different place and capturing different history? So there's Arts Black and Jessica Lynn and Taylor Aldridge, I believe. There is Colored Criticism and a number of other kinds of spaces where people are really looking at writing and what can we write to go on record for what we see things, how we see things, questions we might ask that are different. Elizabeth Mendez Berry has a new colored criticism initiative coming out of, I believe, Allied Media, I'm not sure, looking at issues of people of color being critics across the cultural spectrum, right? So it's writing, it's film, it's all of that getting to kind of understand, look at, see and talk about. And a lot of women are doing this work. I will say that, right? So it's a lot of women to issues of gender and power analysis that come from that space are embedded in, in the work that they're trying to do. So I don't know if that answers specifically, but just that's some of what I'm kind of paying attention to.
3: Thank you so much. This was really elaborate. I'll go on and check some of the stuff you mentioned. Thanks a lot.
2: It's amazing to have you. I got to delve into the institutional matters as listening to you will strike many of the prospective listeners to comprehend thoroughly that the cultural field is not the universe, as often referred, but a multiverse, which encompasses so many realities, contemporaneously, with each one of us dealing with our respective struggles. Mm-hmm. Uh the way that Laundromat had gotten up and is running right now is of course a source of admiration and inspiration. But on the other hand, one cannot help but ponder how could all this be realized in terms of funding since it's a self-organized project. Uh, I mean, how much does laundromat depend on individuals and informal forms of support? And how do you see the condition of the institutional infrastructure as the executive director? I mean. Do you think laundromat could stand by itself in, let's say, like another 50 years, even if the faces, even the proactive members change as decades go by?
1: Yes, that's a great question and one I think about a lot. So I really do think about institution building. That's what I'm interested in doing. As long as we are relevant, I would like us to be able to be here and to thrive. And I think of decisions I make now in the context of what can I do now that will help us thrive in 10, 15, and 20 years. Again, we just hit 15. That's kind of incredible. That was not a given. That was not a guarantee that we would get to double digits. We we were super thrilled to celebrate 10 years, five years ago, and now we're at 15. And it took us 15 years to get to a space with a long-term lease. When the name of the project literally was about owning and operating a space 15 years ago, right? So a lot of this is slow work and deliberate work and thoughtful work. We have a lot of funding. So issues of funding matter. Yes. And I'll get to that in a second. Issues of building structures that last. What does the staffing look like? What do we write down so that someone else can understand it? There is nothing we do that I think should live in me. So, I'm constantly figuring out how to make sure I'm not the only one that carries any specific knowledge and can kind of share that out with other folks so that, you know, I'm not the only one kind of bearing that and the organization is not dependent on me for the rest of time, right? Like, that's not, that's a no no for me, right? And I understand I have, I play a particular role as ED and have a very important role and hold a lot of relationships and history. That's just kind of the way this works. But I can also think of, I have to be intentional about making sure that I undercut that by, again, writing things down, inviting other people to meetings, making connections, doing things that make sure I'm not the only one holding the power and holding relationships. Because relationships are pretty much the richest resource we have as people, full stop, whether it's our world or otherwise. I just, that to me is number one. People-to-people connections trump anything else. So so being able to spend time with those, care for those, and share those are all things I think about in the context of institution building. And of course, if you're trying to build an institution, it costs money. I don't think you have to keep getting bigger, bigger, bigger for the rest of time. But I do think some of our visions of what we can do and what we can do and how we can do it are related to issues of having enough money and people to do that thing. So I was employee number two. Our budget at the time was two hundred thousand. This year, our budget will be one point three million, and we have ten employees, uh, ten staff members, and two interns. So twelve people are being paid, and that was growth that we have deliberately planned out. And now we have a new space, so there's going to be some more rejiggering and and little tweaking there. We also spent the last few years building out the ability to sign a ten-year lease. All of that was like really being thoughtful, writing down plans, so strategic. Plans sound very, you know, businessy, but it turns out it's really about building shared knowledge, shared language, shared vision. Those are the three things that I always think about. Are we sharing knowledge? Do we have a shared understanding and vision of where we're headed? And when we use words, do we mean the same things? That's internally. I don't have to mean the same thing with everybody in the world when I use a word, but internally at the LP, I need to know that my staff means the same thing, the board means the same thing, our artists understand what we're up to, our neighbors can decipher the issues of legibility to me are related to the ability to keep going forward. Because transparency, as we're hearing through all of this agitation happening in our field, a lot of it boils down to transparency and authenticity. And those things are connected. And to the point of money, We get money from a lot of our funding comes through foundations and has historically been the case for a lot of POC organizations and particularly for us as well. But we are definitely building out our individuals and again, doing it with a sense of deliberation, intentionality and planning so that the things I'm doing now are really going to keep paying off five and 10 years from now. And one of the things that we're most focused on is building a base of supporters that are people of color so that we can be funding our own institutions.
2: Well, I'd like to follow with an additional question regarding dependencies. Now that LP has secured a long-term lease on its new building, I mean, are you concerned on any level about how to maintain the progress that you've made? I'm asking this actually because I recently heard that Cadaratias, La Colonie in Paris has to depart from their place at Lafayette due to not being able to afford the expenses, especially after the COVID. This is an impending threat for everyone else too. I mean, without any doubt, especially those who are too bound to physical spaces, will be greatly challenged by the economical circumstances and their present and future consequences. So in short, how would you like to position LP's presence both on material and immaterial scapes? Does LP have what it takes in terms of agility to go on regardless of its physical status? Kimmy, if you don't mind, I
0: just want to add on something because I really feel for what you said and for a good portion of my kind of cultural practice i've been very much invested in tactics but more and more i'm finally i i could say facing the fact that strategies also matter a lot so we we tend to as cultural producers i think we tend to valorize the tactical existence uh, mm-hmm. whereas actually the strategic also matters greatly, and I think it's more crucial. I'm tagging this along to Sarp's question about existing sporadic versus...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And
0: I think it's really crucial that as cultural institutions or as cultural practitioners, producers, there is a strong need to face the fact that actually there needs to be a balance between strategic and tactical thinking. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Thank you both for those questions. And I'll try and weave them together because I think they're both addressing really important things. I really think of myself in what I have to do for the LP, building a container and figuring out what that container is, is my work so that what's in the container can be sporadic, can try tactics, et cetera. But that outer container is a larger strategy, to your point. Like I really feel that deeply in the sense of institution building. So I really am emphasizing this idea of institution building very intentionally. I'm trying to build something that will last. And what you do with that is very different than if it's meant to be sporadic and tactical for all time. Inside that larger strategy, issues of tactics and different projects, etc., is very valid. But I'm trying to build a container that will support the thriving of culture and cultural workers in communities of color, which are very contested spaces around issues of gentrification and food and climate and all the things that we know. I'm trying to build space for culture led by, centered on, informed by folks of color in these here United States and New York City in particular through an institutional frame that lacks. So I have to think about it like, what do we need to do now so that five years we can still support work that's happening in a particular way and we made what how that work shows up can change because the frame outside it still exists yes we're going to look for resources we need people to be supportive of that in a whole variety of ways We want to engage a larger and larger community of folks to support the work. We do take institutional money. So that isn't something we've given up. And that's really central to our ability to do that work right now. In 10 or 15 years, that might shift, but it's not going to be now. So I need to figure out how to keep that going. And to allow our artists to try and do different things. So we actually don't do sporadic work so much. We work citywide and work with artists all over the city. But this idea of being anchored, again, going back to the story of the laundromat, the, that idea initially, was going to just be one laundromat and one city on one street. Because we didn't have the money, we actually became citywide early on. And that's ended up being really critical to the work that we weave information and knowledge and tactics and ideas from across the city. But we also want to anchor. And we, again, we think about language really deeply. So think about the word anchor in one physical place that allows us to connect to other things and other people and support work, but having a space where we know is home base and our artists can come from all over the city, people can come from other parts of the world because we've occasionally worked with artists from elsewhere who've connected to us and our work and our spaces, et cetera, is really key. So it is that kind of playing with both the big and the small, the citywide and the neighborhood level, the affinity and the geography. There's all that kind of play that happens in that. And I have to keep a view from, you know, kind of that 30,000 foot view to kind of, oh, what is the thing, the larger container that I can build that helps all of those things move around and doesn't need to be bigger or shaped a little differently or whatever. But you can wake up any of my staff members and we kind of know what our job is from a big picture place. And that's been, the again, shared knowledge, shared language, shared vision. We all have that. So no one's confused about what the bigger picture container is while we figure out what to do within it.
0: And also perhaps position. I think how you position the institution and the shared understanding of the position yeah. of the institution
2: yeah. with
0: yeah. regards to everything you mentioned. I think that's that's quite crucial. Self, and that...
1: Self-determination and self-articulation are very important to us. And the reality is I live in a very racialized context where Black and people of color institution in the united states it has a meaning and we're very aware of that and one of the things we felt was so critical was to name ourselves so i can jump through whatever hoopa funder needs me to jump through because i need to raise money but i can usually figure out a way to help them understand what i see Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in relationship to what they want me to see and I don't apply for everything if they're going to make me jump through hoops I'm not interested in. Literally just last week, I talked to someone who wanted to do something like, that's fantastic. You do that. We don't do that. That's fine. It wasn't a bad thing. It just wasn't our work. I'm not going to add that to my list of things. I already have my own work to do. But we call ourselves a POC-centered organization, a P- people of color-centered organization, which we've only done for a year and a half, even though we've always done work that was that. So, But we wanted to name it and make it visible to ourselves and make it visible to other folks. And we wrote it up 10 principles that we call our POC-centered principles. All this is up on our website. This is what that looks like for us and what it means for us. It may mean something different for you or, you know, whatever, but we call ourselves POC-centered. Here are the 10 things that means from economic issues of economic justice to investing in our staff to how we use language, all of that. Welcoming complexity is the number one, because in the end, we live in a very complex world. And one of the things that we love and most enjoy is that any person of color or anybody, but again, all, many of the bodies that engage with the LP are people of color, are allowed to hold their full complexity in a world that doesn't want them to be complex, but insist that they be simple, right? So being able to write that down and have that to refer to for ourselves, literally for ourselves, And then also be able to share it with others, put it on our website. Those are issues of self-determination and self-articulation that I think are critical to building the world that we want to have and the world that we want to be part of, particularly as folks who do not traditionally hold the power.
0: Fantastic. And especially with regards to a field that has its roots in uh, the colonial apparatus known as the museum, Absolutely. And I think that's like a very crucial to have a clear position and an articulation and having the power to express it and not withholding. I would like to applaud simply that in itself. It's been an inspiring session and really a lot to build on, recognize, and both from your practice and from the way you operate the points and the realities you touch on and intervene to, I think it was super valuable. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about the works we discussed in this episode. You can also visit us at ahali.space And please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. Hope to see you next time.